Last week, we began to move through the lines of Cain and Seth. In chapter 4, we began to look at Cain's line, the son of Adam who killed his brother, who aligned himself with the seed of the serpent by lying after he killed his brother, lying to God. And then we began to move through the line of Seth. And we saw through the line of Seth that there were those who called on the name of the Lord. There were those who walked with Lord, with the Lord. It was even emphasized in the line of Seth that men were living these long lives. And we began to compare the two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. We got down to verse 27 of chapter 5, which reads this way. Thus all the days of Methuselah, this is Enoch's son. Remember last week we talked about Enoch who walked with the Lord by faith and the Lord took him. His son, Methuselah, his days were 969 years and again, he died. This was the longest life. This is where we get the phrase, old as Methuselah or older than Methuselah. Then notice verse 28, when Lamech, and this is a different Lamech than the one that was in Cain's line. This is the Lamech of Seth's line. When he had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or comfort from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. I have to admit, I stopped there last week because I was having a hard time understanding how Noah brought comfort. I was having a hard time understanding how Noah brought relief. And if we know the story of Noah, we know that it is a story of death and destruction. A story of judgment. You see, so often we have such a cartoonish view of the story of Noah's ark that we don't understand how scary and terrifying the story really is. So how could this story bring comfort? I mean, after all, we think about Noah's ark and we think about the pictures in our nursery. Cute little boats painted on the wall. Two little pigs looking out the side, because we've got to have pigs, farm animals. That's culturally relevant, right? And then let's throw in some exotic animals, some zebras. And then it's, it's just sort of cute and funny that you have giraffes hanging out of the top of the ark. So we have this cute little kid's version of Noah's ark in our mind. And don't forget a rainbow and a dove, pretty colors on the wall. But the reality is, if we painted this picture in light of what really happened, it would be terrifying. We would never want to put a picture of Noah's Ark on the wall of any children's room, let alone a nursery at church. Billions of people screaming for their lives as they are drowning in a cosmic flood. We would never put that on the wall of a nursery. 
Your kids wouldn't want to come to church if we did that. It would be scary. It would be terrifying. And so how can the story of Noah bring comfort? This prayer of his father, how does this happen? Well, I think the answer revolves around two questions. And the first question is, are we that bad? How does Noah bring comfort? Well, let's ask the question, are we that bad? And then, amen. And then the second question is, can God really be that mad? Are we that bad and can God really be that mad? Those are the two questions that we want to ask as we move through this familiar story. And so let's begin by asking the first question, are we that bad? From Genesis chapter 3, we've seen how sin has just spiraled out of control as man has separated himself from God. He is disconnected in death from God. And sin and death begin to spiral out of control. We've seen murder. We've seen self-exaltation. We've seen polygamy. We've seen godless cultures. We've seen pride in violence and a disdain for life. And so in chapter 4, we say, yes, we're bad. And yet it keeps getting worse. Even with the hope of chapter 5, when we get to chapter 6, it gets even worse. Notice verse 1 of chapter 6 as we begin to see the description of our sin. First of all, described with the lust of the eyes. Notice when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of man and were attract, that they were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And we read that and we first of all say, it seems to be good. What God called man to do, to be fruitful and multiply, this was a part of his role in the world, to take dominion, spreading his glory on the earth through bringing forth and cultivating life that's going on here. We said last week that during Adam's time, there were millions of people who came into the world. And we'll talk about this. Before the flood, literally billions of people. And so the earth, the world, seems to be moving forward as God created it. This is a good thing. But notice verse 2, the sons of God. Now there's controversy over who the sons of God are. Throughout church history, many have believed that these were fallen angels who marry the daughters of men, humans, angels who are united with humans. And this leads some to believe, as we get down to verse 4, that this union led to superhuman hybrid giants. Now, before you say that's crazy and that's insane, many of your church heroes Church history heroes believed and taught this very thing. There's even a verse in the book of Jude, verse 6, that talks about angels leaving their proper dwelling. Peter, in 2 Peter, talks about God not sparing angels who sinned during the time of Noah. And so this view has merit. But I don't think it's correct. I don't think it's right. First of all, 
When we see judgment, it comes upon man, not angels. So for me, primarily, that's why I believe the sons of God here refer to the line of Cain, or the line of Seth. Now remember when Seth was born, what Eve said? God appointed me this child. God provided this child. And then we saw in chapter 5 as the chapter begins and there's the description of, Cain, of Seth's line. We, we go back to Adam and we see that man was created in the image of God. And so in Seth's line, there is this centeredness, emphasis on God. We even see in Seth's line that men called on the name of the Lord and walked with God. So who are the daughters of men here? I believe they're from the line of Cain. Remember when Cain was born, what did Eve say? I got a man. And then we see that this led to man-centered cities. It led to man-centered marriages, man-centered accomplishments, man-centered violence. And we even see here that the daughters of men are described according to their physical beauty. Remember Lamech? In Cain's line, the way his wives were described, it was according to their physical beauty. Zillah, which means shade or shadow. And Adah, which means adornment. And the only daughter that is described in the line of Cain is Namah, and she is described as the lovely one. And so we see a distinction here. The, the line of Seth is described in this God-centered way. The line of Cain is described in this man-centered way. And so the sons of God, I believe, refer to the line of Seth, and the daughters of men, the line of Cain. And then even more here, as we see what is described in verse 2, the mixing of these lines, Seth's line mixing with Cain's line, it is described as the same way sin in the garden is described. Remember when Eve saw the fruit, what did she see? That it was pleasing to the eyes. And she took and ate. Here the line of Seth began to see the daughters of men, the daughters in Cain's line, and they are pleasing to the eyes. They're attracted to them physically. And they began, notice the text says, they began to take them as their wives, any they chose. This is just according to their desires. This is according to their, the, the way they are attracted to them. The same way Lamech in Cain's line chose his two wives, according to physical beauty. And so we would ask, what is wrong with this? What is, the, what is wrong with Seth's line mixing with Cain's line? Well, remember how the line of Seth is described as those who worship the Lord, as those who call out on the Lord. We even see Enoch and later Noah will be described as one who walks with the Lord. We read in Hebrews that they walk by faith, not by sight. Not by the, their eyes. Not by the lust of their eyes. And here Seth's line, as, he, as his line mixes with Cain's line, they are acting in the same way Cain acts. By sight, not faith. And we begin to see 
that the wickedness of Cain's line begins to overtake the faith of Seth's line and judgment is inevitable. But the first sin we see described here, the point of this section, is the lust of the eyes. The way sin is described. We all know what this is like. When our eyes will tell us what is good and right versus what God has said. The desire of our eyes to say no matter what God has said, no matter His rule, no matter His design, no matter what is good, no matter what it means to walk by faith, I'm going to walk by sight and be led by my eyes to something better. That's what's going on here. But next we see the lust of the flesh. Notice verse 3. As sin and wickedness begin to mount, as the line of Seth is overtaken by the sin of Cain's line, notice the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Notice the the description of God's presence here. I believe this is referring to the person of the Spirit that we even saw in the garden that is walking in the cool of the day. And we see God's presence is with man in the garden. But we have seen since the garden, there is this gradual removal of God's presence with man. And here... This is the end of the line, God says. My presence and my spirit will not reside. Notice he says, in man, for he is flesh. Why would God take his spirit away? Because man's not living according to the spirit. He's living according to flesh, temporal desires. Remember in the garden, man was created and given the breath of life, given the spirit of life to know God and to obey God, here he's not living according to the Spirit that God has given him, his presence with him. He's simply living according to his fleshly desires. Now, as humans, we are given certain desires by God that are good. We are given desires for drink, for food, for sex, for pleasure, to enjoy things in the world. And we're to do those things and enjoy those things to the glory of God. He's given us those desires and we're to thank God for those things. And we're to use those things for His glory. But when we turn those desires inward and we take those good desires and those good things and we use them only for ourselves. We're not living according to God's design, His presence, His will. We're simply living according to those desires, living according to what God describes here as flesh. Man is just flesh. He's just living according to his flesh. These desires turn inward. Those good desires meant to glorify God, they turn into sin. The drink turns into drunkenness. The food turns into gluttony. The sex turns into immorality, living according to the flesh, doing those things, engaging those things. No regard for God's presence, His Spirit, His goodness, just about me. And God says throughout the whole earth, this is what is going on. 
And he says, my spirit, notice the word abide. It will not remain in man. You could even translate this. It will not judge within. Up until this point, there is, there is in some sense, God is restraining the sin on the earth. But here he says, no longer. And I think he's referring to 120 years here before the flood where God just lets sin go. And he removes any sort of restriction. And that judgment, the judgment of letting sin go, leads to the judgment of the flood. So we've seen the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and next we see the pride of life. Notice verse 4, and these are all sins that are described in 1 John, the way sin works according to the eyes, the flesh, and here the pride of life. Notice the Nephilim were on the earth. They were on the earth in those days and also afterward. This is why I don't believe this refers to anything that has to do with demons. They were on the earth when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. These lines are mixing and they bear children. And he says, these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now here, I believe he's just describing a time period. And this was an age when there were Nephilim. Now that word refers to giants. Now we don't need to think superhuman giants, Jack and the Beanstalk. This is just massive men, massive humans, giants. We see the word Nephilim is brought up again when the people of God are going into the land and they're spying out the land and they come back and report and they say, we have seen Nephilim. What does that mean? We have seen giants. We have seen massive humans, massive men who make us look like grasshoppers. These aren't superhuman hybrids. These are just massive men like we see in Goliath who was nine foot tall. And we think of the legend of Goliath. That's what he's describing here. A time period where there were these legends of massive humans. Now, why is that important? Because he's describing the pride of life, the pride of humanity. Sin was spiraling out of control and it was getting worse and worse. Even during a time of great men, of the pride of men. The largest, strongest, mighty men of renown. This was the age when we could exalt men in this way that they were almost superhuman. They were great and massive and accomplished. It'd be like us saying, it's like the 80s. The greatest generation. And recounting all of the greatest pop artists. All of the greatest movies. Famous athletes during that time. The pride of life. It's a great age of mighty men. But what does God see? As we think about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, or the pride of men. Are all these things that bad? Being led by our eyes, our flesh, exalting humanity? Are all these things that bad? Well, what does God see? Notice the Lord he saw that the wickedness of man was great. Right after the description of these great men, the greatest men you've ever seen, massive humans, warriors, legends, great. What does God see? That wickedness in the earth is great. That's what God sees. And notice the description. 
that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, the thoughts of whose heart, man's heart, humanity in general, his heart was wicked. The intentions, the motives, the ideas, the thoughts in his head, the thoughts of his heart, who he is, the totality of who he is, what he wants and what he thinks, notice, was only evil continually. Now go back through the description of man's heart and who he is. He's wicked. And notice his wickedness is great. Great. Mega wickedness. And then every intention, not just some, every intention, every motive of his thoughts, meaning what he thinks he wants, is wicked. And then, if it wasn't enough, this verse just keeps coming, was only evil continually. Only evil always. That's all it was. That's all man was, was evil and wicked. You see, God sees beyond the beauty that man sees in the daughters of men. God sees beyond the flesh where man thinks there's freedom. He sees beyond the accomplishments and legends of, and, and pride in men here. He sees to the heart. And what does He see in the heart of men? Wickedness. He sees total, absolute depravity in man. You see, humanity could turn around to God and say, but look at all we've accomplished. Look at our cities. By the way, you told us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Look all around. Millions of people. Leading to billions of people. Look at the sort of men we've produced. These legends. Strong, powerful. Look, God. Look how awesome we are. And yet God sees beyond the exterior to the heart. And that's exactly what some of you are doing today. You know there's something wrong inside of you. You know there's something deep down in you that's not right. That's contrary to the way you were created and what you were meant to be. You know that. And to deny it, you're trying to say, well, look how successful I am. Look at all the great things I've done. Look how nice I am. Look at all the ways that I serve the church. I'm here all the time. I do everything that, that is asked of me to do. I go to a BFG. I serve and I even sign up for the hardest things around here. I know my Bible. I go to Bible studies. I even read a little theology on the side to know more about God. I pray. I'm engaged in all the spiritual disciplines. I have great values. I'm a part of the right voter block. Look, God. Look. Look at my flesh. And God sees beyond it, and He sees beyond the image to who you really are, to what you know is really true about yourself. And that's that your heart is wicked. That's what Jeremiah says. Your heart is deceitful and it is wicked above all things. Want to describe who you are deep down? I'm just a good person deep down. That's not the way God describes you. 
deep down in your heart, you're wicked. And if God doesn't restrain your wickedness, you will let loose in wickedness. God sees your heart in the lust of your eyes, your addiction to things and people and pixels that aren't yours, that God didn't design for you. You know what He sees in the lust of your eyes? A heart that's discontent with all the good things He's provided for you. In the desires of your flesh, when you say, I'm going to do whatever I want to. I'm going to choose whatever I want to. With my money, with my time, with my energy, with my life, I'm just going to do whatever I want. What does God see there? He sees your heart. And He sees a heart that is rejecting Him for self. In your pride and your ambitions where you say, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, I'm wise enough, I deserve more than enough. And you exalt yourself. You boast about yourself. What does God see there? Not just someone who believes in themselves, but He sees someone who is exalting themselves against Him. And you may say today, I'm not always continually evil. No, your heart is always continually evil. It is. And left without God's grace, you would choose to act and behave always continually evil. But God here says, man, I'm I'm not going to allow this to go anymore. I'm going to let loose and sin is going to take control and it leads to judgment. And he does so because he sees a wicked heart in man. And so, are we that bad? Yes, we are that bad. And so the next question is, can God be that mad? Well, notice verse 6. The Lord regrets it. In light of man's sin and wickedness, that is God's response. He regretted. it. Let that sink in. God regretted that He had made man on the earth. It's in the Bible. God put it there for us to read. For us to see something about His heart. Notice, and it grieved Him to His heart. It broke Him. It destroyed Him. As if someone had died, he weeps, he grieves over man's heart, over sin and wickedness on the earth. But notice here the contrast. Man's heart is glutted with sin. Man's heart is drawn to sin. What does sin do to the heart of God? It grieves him. It breaks his heart. The same way a parent who sees their child choosing things that You just know this is not good for you. This is not right. This is going to end badly for you. And as much as you can plead with them not to do it, they still choose it. And even as a parent, the smallest little things where they don't trust you, it breaks your heart. Because they don't trust you that you are for their good. And this is why sin breaks the heart of God. He knows it is horrible and it is awful for us. And so what is God's response? The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. 
Now, face of the land is used throughout to describe what we see. Man sees beauty, achievement, pride. God sees wickedness. And, and the word here, blot out, it, it is like taking a plate and just wiping the contents off the plate. Like just wiping it clean. Nothing left. God's going to do this on the face of the earth. Everything that you see will be destroyed and wiped out. He even says man, animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heaven. He's going to destroy it all. Man was responsible to cultivate and rule over life. And part of that was through his obedience to God. And he's disobeying God. And so the result is even creation will endure judgment. Why, God? I regret it. Means he changed his mind. And in the last part of verse 7, I am sorry that I made them. Let that sink in. Don't try to explain it away theologically just yet. We'll do that in just a minute. The raw emotion of God. To look on the earth and His beautiful creation and Him to go, I've changed my mind about it. I'm sorry that I did this. God felt those emotions about His creation. And why? Because of the sin and wickedness of man. It broke His heart for Him to say, I regret I did this. And I hate I did this. Now there is anthropomorphism going on. Slow down to say that word correctly. Where the Bible is using human characteristics to describe God. We do this throughout the Bible. God remembers His promises. It's not as though He forgot them. God forgets our sin. It's not as though He could actually forget the Bible's trying to describe something going on in the mind and heart of God. God searches the earth. God doesn't have to use Google to search the earth. He knows everything all the time. But, but the Bible is trying to communicate the raw emotion of God in light of sin. Now we have to understand, God never experiences emotion passively. We experience emotion passively. Anger comes over us and we just can't control it. Sadness comes over us, we can't control it. Anxiety, we experience those emotions and it's passive. God's never passive with His emotions. He always chooses His emotions. And in this moment, he's choosing the emotion of sorrow and grief and brokenheartedness. He's choosing that. And it's not as though at this time in history, this was a shock to God. Oh my goodness, I didn't know this was going to happen. I made a mistake. It's not what's going on with God. He knew this moment would happen before he created the world. And yet he still chose to create the world because he's going to choose to engage in that emotion. He's going to choose to engage and feel the pain of sin, which is what is going on here. 
God steps into the world, gives his heart over to the world so that his heart would be broken by the world. He chose to do it. He knew it would happen. And God's not just throwing a temper tantrum here. Ah! Calm down, God. Let's get control. Tell me why you think you're feeling these emotions. It's not what's going on. You see, we read verses 6 and 7 a lot of times like God's the problem. God's not the problem here. Our sin is the problem. And God's grief and judgment reveal something about His character, which is right and good. And He is holy. And He is righteous. And the grief and brokenness of God and the judgment pronounced here declares to us that our sin is an infinite offense against a holy God. This is describing something about God. That He is holy and He is righteous. And we have sinned against Him. And that is an infinite sin against a holy, righteous God. This is why hell isn't just a reality. It's true. The Bible describes a place of eternal torment that never ends in fire and anguish for those who reject Christ. That is real. It's not just a reality. It's a necessity. Why is hell a necessity? Because God is holy and righteous and good. And all sin against Him must be punished eternally. Do you understand that? All willful rejection and violation against a holy God is an attack on His person, His character, His goodness, His rightness. And it must be judged. Or... God is not holy and right. If sin isn't judged, then God's not holy and righteous. You see, hell is not a necessity if sin's not that big a deal. And if sin's not a big deal, then God must not be holy. Do you see how that works together? God is holy, so sin is an infinite deal. And because sin is a big deal, Hell is a necessity. Judgment is a necessity. And so today, as you think about your sin, I want to warn you that brokenness before God is not just the thought that I don't like God's punishment. I don't like the fact that there could be consequences for my sin. That's not brokenness that leads to repentance. I just don't like the thought of hell. When you say that, what you're saying is, I don't like the thought that God may be right and just and holy. Understand what brokenness before God really is. It's not like the kid who goes, he's just irritated that you're overbearing, that you're always on him, and then you're issuing possibilities of punishment. And they go, okay, I'll just do the right thing. Just because they don't like the consequences or the possibilities of what's coming. No, they, they don't 
They don't trust you and they don't respect you. That's at the heart of the issue. And that's at the heart of the issue of God's judgment. Is that you don't trust Him and you don't respect Him. And you think, according to your sinful desires, you can provide for yourself better. No brokenness before God is God, you are holy and you are right. And that means every single thing that you've called me to do is good for me. And you have provided more than enough for me to experience your goodness and joy and freedom in this world. And yet in my own heart, I thought I was good and right and holy. And so I acted according to my own heart and I acted according to my own will. Instead of your infinitely holy, right, perfect will. And God, if you send me to hell for my sin, it would be right and just. Have you ever thought that? Sometimes we say, I believe in Jesus just so I don't go to hell. We never think about the fact that if God did send me to hell, that that would be right of Him to do. Can God be that mad? If sin is that bad, yes. we got to get those two things right. Am I that bad? Yes. Can God be that mad? Yes. If sin is that big a deal, if God is holy, the answer to those questions is yes. And if we answer those questions yes, And only if we answer those questions, yes, can verse 8 be a comfort to us. Are we that bad? Yes. Can God be that mad? Yes. Verse 8. But Noah found favor. If God is that mad at our sin, that is glorious. There's hope. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What is emphasized throughout the whole section? The eyes of the Lord. The way man sees with his eyes. What God sees. And so far, God has seen a sinful heart in the heart of men that deserves judgment. But notice what God chooses to do with his eyes here. Despite what he sees, he chooses to look on one with favor. Notice Noah found favor. It's not as though Noah hears of the judgment of God, thinks of the judgment of God, and says, I've got to look around for some favor. Oh, I found it. No, this is God's sovereign decision to look on one with favor. Grace, which is what favor means. It is undeserved. You can't earn it. we'll, We'll describe Noah as a man who walks with God. That's not why he earned favor. Because we get to the end of the flood story, and we see that Noah is a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner, just like the rest of us. He's a sinner who deserved to be in the flood. But God chooses to look on him with favor. God looks beyond the image. He sees the heart that deserves judgment, but He chooses favor. And this is why the story of Noah 
this horrifying story of judgment can bring us comfort. And the only reason this story can bring us comfort at this point is because Noah found favor. And there is the hope of grace. And grace isn't something you obtain by your image, your accomplishments, your success, by just getting things right before the judgment comes. No, it is God's sovereign goodness to you when He looks on your life and He gives you what you don't deserve. He doesn't judge you. And there's hope in the life and story of Noah. But grace only comforts those who are first broken by their sin. We are that bad. And grace only comforts those who understand because of their sin, they deserve God's judgment. He is that mad at sin. This is how grace comforts us. In light of our sin and in light of God's judgment. And for the one today who would be broken by their sin, Noah offers hope in another way. Because he points to another one who will bring comfort to us in a more terrifying scene of judgment than even the flood. Noah points us to one who did not find favor with God until three days later. Noah points us to one who found the wrath of God, was not rescued, but drowned in eternal punishment on the cross for our sins. You see, Noah leads us to a place of judgment, which is also a place of comfort. And it's more terrifying than the flood. You see, at the cross, we begin to see sin the way God sees sin. We look at the flood and we see, oh, man is wicked. And this is what God thinks about sin. We do the same thing at the cross. We see sin and we see our sin personally the way God sees it. You see, at the cross, we see beyond the sort of pretty up versions of ourselves where we've got it together and everything looks right from the outside. We see beyond that to what God sees. At the cross, we see the horrifying images of the Son of God, His eyes swollen, His vocal cords torn as He is screaming, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because He is innocent? Because He doesn't deserve that. That is horrifying. The gruesome disgust of the cross is a picture of your sin. As Jesus Himself suffocates as His tendons are being ripped and He can't hold Himself up any longer. What you are seeing there is what God thinks about your sin. Your sin is concretized at the cross. And you are to stand there and be broken by your sin. That is what my sin cost. My sin held him there. That is how wicked my heart is. Is that my sin would hold the Son of God on the cross. It is a gruesome picture, not just physically, but spiritually, of your sin. 
And it's, a, it's to see, you're to see the brokenness of God who grieves and is sorry about your sin. So much so, he would be broken himself. And the question for you today is, will you say the same thing as God at the cross? That you are that bad? That's the only way grace can comfort you. You see, if you have nothing to be comforted about sin, then grace is no comfort for you. And that may be why some of you don't think grace is so amazing. It's no comfort to you. Because you've never stared into the eyes of your sin. You see, you may come to this story and you may deny your sin. And you may say, that's just an ancient group of people, an ancient civilization, and and they didn't have it all together yet. And God just sort of lost His emotions a little bit. And He was outraged and He canceled them. Oh no. You can't come to the cross that way. Because if you do, you can't have anything to do with the cross. No, you come to the cross and you say, I'm out it. That's what my sin looks like. My sin is on blast. That's who I really am, that it would cost the Son of God. My sin was so bad against a holy God that it placed Himself on the cross to be judged by Himself. That is the only way God could do anything about my sin. Are you willing to say that today? You see, right now there's a heaviness in this room. And some of us are really uncomfortable with that. Some of us are really uncomfortable with the heaviness right now. Some of you are thinking, oh, this is one of those churches. I knew the parking and warehouse was a bad sign before I walked in here. The degree to which you would be uncomfortable with your sin in this moment is the degree to which you will be comforted by grace. Will you allow yourself to say, yes, I'm that bad? Because for the Christian, it's not, and yes, God is that mad. For the one who believes in Jesus, it's God was that mad at me. Because now I have been covered in the judgment of Christ. And he sees Christ. Beyond the heart, beyond the flesh, beyond the pride. He sees Christ. Will you be comforted by the grace of God in Christ?